That's not necessarily an easy statement to make this morning. Even so, come Lord Jesus. I think there's a, a point where oftentimes we're holding on to the things of the world and to say, even so, come Lord Jesus. It's like, but, but maybe not right now. I've got a few more things that I want to do or I want to experience this. And, or, or maybe it's because sometimes there are things that are not right in our lives where we're living in a way that doesn't honor God. There's sin and if he came back, we've not yet repented of that sin. Maybe we would be embarrassed instead of confident when he returns. This morning I want to share a message with you entitled Revive the Church. And in part, as we've studied through this book of 1 Timothy, one of the things that I think we want to accomplish is to say to God, God will be a church ready for you. When you send your son and he comes and gets his bride, we want to be a church that's ready for his return. All through history, even from the very first century, the church has been constantly called to revival. It's interesting, even by the end of the first century, John was writing to the churches uh, in Revelation 2 and 3 saying, repent, return to your first works. And so why is it true that there's always, through all the time of church history, this call, this yearning for revival? And in part, it's because of that natural drift that happens. We live in a world where we're constantly being pulled away from the things of God and from the Word of God. And if we're not regularly in the Word of God, it's real easy to get complacent and comfortable and even compromise certain areas of our lives. But it's just that sin nature in all of us, the flesh that we live in, uh, that abiding sin that seems to be with us that will not be gone until we go to be with Jesus that allows us or draws us to a place of wondering, of drifting, of not being where God wants us to be. And so, again, that question comes back. Will we be a church that's ready for Jesus' return? One day, he's going to come back. There's no question. He said it clearly. Now, there may be some controversy over the events that will take place Leading up to his return, we, we have that in Scripture too, and none of us knows when he'll return, but all of us who follow Christ believe that he's going to return. And when he returns, his father's going to say to him, go get your bride. And are we going to be ready for that? I would say to you, the world is, a not, is not in need of more churches in this day. The world is in need of more biblical churches. You see, even in our own area, there are churches on every corner, but does that mean Greensboro loves Jesus more? Does that mean Greensboro is more submitted and following Christ more? And no, not just because there are churches everywhere, but the world needs more biblical churches. It's not that the world needs more entertainment. There's entertainment all around. They can turn on the television to get entertainment. It's not that the world needs some kind of needs-based ministry from the church that's man-centered and worldly, that seeks to be attractive to the world. The world needs a biblical church. The world isn't in need of a church that will do more to attract the world. The world is in need of a church that will do more to attract God. 
You see, when we're attracting God and God is moving among us, the world will be drawn to a church like that. It doesn't work in the reverse. We don't do everything we do for the world to come to us. We do everything we can to attract the attention of God and worship Him in a way that pleases Him. And then God does His work through us. Church, we need a revival. To refocus on who we're here for and who the head is and what the head desires and requires of the church. And so this morning, would you join with me in prayer and asking God to revive the church? Father, we are your people, bought with the precious blood of your Son. We know that apart from you, we can do nothing. Forgive us for our attempts at being an attractional church to the world. I pray that you would help us to be focused on the fact that we join our hearts together to give you honor and worship and praise that we as your sons and daughters gather to worship you. And I pray that you would be front and center. That when we come, we come to give. We come to give our worship. We come to lay our lives down before you. We pray for revival that we would refocus our hearts, our minds, and worship you, enjoy you, glorify you. Father, would you do your good work this morning as we've gathered for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's come back to our question that we asked in the first sermon through 1 Timothy. We've been through uh, 20 services that dealt with 1 Timothy, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, and ending in chapter 6 in verse 21. So we've gone verse by verse through this book in the Bible, looking at it, and we started with the fact of we desire revival. We want God to do what only God can do in His church, and we want to be ready when Jesus returns. And so we looked at Jonathan Edwards in that very first sermon from 1 Timothy called Revive the Church, and Jonathan Edwards was one of the leading men in the first great awakening in America in the 1700s. And when all of that was happening, he wrote a, a, a book dealing with revival. And in that book, he had five distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit. There are a lot of religious things that were going on in that time period. And some of it was not at all to do with God or His Word, but yet it was getting that... Uh, label of church or religious and so he wanted to pull it back and say if you want to know when God's at work here are five things and over these last couple of hundred years most people who are interested in revival come back to the work that Jonathan Edwards did at that time so the first mark that he pointed out was when the work is such as to raise the esteem of professed converts for Jesus and seems to establish their minds in the truth of the gospel testimony to him as the Son of God and the Savior of men. When God begins the work, begins to do his work, the focus is on Jesus. We're Christ-centered. All we do points to him. It's not to bring attention to ourselves, it's to bring attention to him. A biblical church is a Christ-centered church. And Jonathan Edwards said when a church is experiencing revival, all the focus is on Christ. Secondly, when the spirit that is at work operates against the interest of Satan's kingdom, which lies in encouraging and establishing sin. 
In other words, God begins to call us people to repentance. The sins in our lives that we've become comfortable in, that we've warmed up to, God shines His light on and we realize that we're away from Him, we're not walking with Him, we're living in sin. And when the Spirit of God is at work, He begins to point out that sin and calls us to repentance. Thirdly, when the Spirit, the Spirit operates to bring about a greater regard to the Scriptures and establishes them more in their truth and divine origin. A church that experiences revival loves the Scriptures, understands that they're given by God, understands it's inspired by God, it's truth by God, it's a, a revelation from God about God, it's the story of God, and the generosity of God in creating people to enjoy Him and of the price of sending His Son to restore His people. And so a church that experiences revival comes back to the Word of God and says, we believe it and we surrender to it. It understands its divine origin. And the fourth thing, when the Spirit operates as a Spirit of truth, leading persons to the truth and convincing them of those things that are true. There's an emphasis on sound doctrine. Taking all of Scripture and understanding the truth of God as we study it in context and understand the background of it and then apply it to where we are today. And finally, he said, when the Spirit operates as a spirit of love to God and man. It's a greater love for God. A greater love for His people. There's a unity that is not conditioned on ethnicity or generation, age or time, but there's a unity. There is a love for God and a love for people. So where do we turn to get a clearer picture of this kind of a church? One that is experiencing revival. One that is living life out and serving as God intended. Well, if only God had inspired a letter to be written to help the church. We really have three pastoral letters that are helping the church to understand this is God's design. This is what God intended. But 1 Timothy is one of those. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And in particular, Paul lays out what God's design for the church is. What should we be aiming for? If we're going to be a church that's ready for his return, this is the kind of church that we want to be. This is the kind of church that we want to strive for, pray for, ask God for and surrender to become. Since God's Word is living and active, that is, it's always true, there's never going to be a time period that the Word of God is not true. He said it Himself, His Word is living and active, since it is the church at Lawndale is responsible for the words God gave through Paul to Timothy to the church at Ephesus. We can't look at this book and say it was written a couple of thousand years ago so it doesn't apply to us. God is a living God, and because He's a living God, He inspired a book that is living and active. It is always true. As He is the I Am, His Word is always applicable and relevant. And as many as might want to try to tear down the Word of God, not one jot, not one tittle will ever pass away. And for those who are a little bit younger, that's King James' version. But it will not pass away. It will be one of those books that will be there, I, I believe, when we stand before God and will be a, a judged according to the Word of God. It is always true, and we're responsible for what God has said about His church. First Timothy, particularly, 
as Paul was writing it, he understood that he was writing to help the church to know how to function. And so in 1 Timothy 3 verse 14, remember, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. God has given us clear instructions for how to be ready when Jesus comes back. In chapter 1, he gives us the importance of doctrine. Now, all through the letter, there's an emphasis on truth and doctrine. But in particular, when you read back through chapter 1 in a very general sense, Paul is pointing out to Timothy how important it is that you stay focused on what is true and the Word of God. And as you move into chapters 2 and 3, he talks about the importance of leadership. He gives us roles. He gives us qualifications. He gives us what God expects because all of His people should be living according to that way. But those who are leaders, they've matured to a certain place so that they're modeling what the rest of the church family is supposed to be doing and then as you move into the second part of the letter chapters four through six you see the importance of ministry in the church what that teaching ought to be like how to handle widows uh, within the church family the good works that we should be doing in the church and outside the church and so we get a pretty good picture of what the church should be doing how to behave in the household of God so as we gather for him first and foremost I started thinking about the core values that we hold at Lawndale. Do they hold up to this book of 1 Timothy? You say, Rodney, we've been hearing you talk about five core values. Well, when we weigh them according to Scripture, are we really focused on what's important? And so I would submit to you this morning, if we're going to be a church that's ready for Him when He returns, that we're going to commit to biblical worship. That's our first core value, biblical worship. We see that in the book of 1 Timothy, and we're going to bounce around some to get these themes. But remember in chapter 1 and verse 17, as Paul was writing, he broke out into this doxology, this word of praise to our great God, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, that's why we gather. We gather to give Him worship. When we gather, it's going to... It, 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 should be a gathering that is God-centered and it should be about him and not about us it should be about him and not even the world sometimes we gather there are times that if we get off course we gather and we make it about us very man-centered sometimes we gather we make it about the world how are we going to reach the world and it's world-centered but what we find in scripture is that worship should be God-centered it's about Him. And so when I sing a song, whether it's an ancient hymn, an old hymn, or a modern hymn, if I'm singing those words unto Him, it's God-centered. If I'm singing unto myself or for the world or for my... You see the difference there? Where is my heart? We're, we're going to be a biblical... A church that's committed to biblical worship and it's God-centered. Another place in chapter 6 where we see this kind of praise, this doxology. Look over 
into verse 15 of chapter 6, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. We focus, we worship to focus on God. We, we gather as a body to give Him the glory and the worship He deserves. We do that all week individually. You do that wherever you go. You do that in your homes. Your life should be an offering of worship unto God, but He calls us together as a body so that we can enjoy life to its fullest and worship Him together. This is a taste of heaven. In heaven, that's going to be the greatest activity in the world because all the stuff of the world will be laid aside. We won't worry about, our, uh, about all the uh, environment and trappings and whether we can sing or can't sing. We won't worry about any of that in heaven. It's going to be about Him and it's going to be worshiping Him. It's God-centered. And, and in this time period, we get this opportunity to taste a little bit of heaven here on earth when we gather together and worship Him as a family. We commit to biblical worship. It'll be God-centered. It'll be word-focused. Look in chapter 3 in verse 15. Do you remember how he referred to the church? If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. God has given His truth in the Word of God. And we as a church, we're entrusted with this good deposit. We're, we're teaching it. We're uh, lined up with it. So that when you come to Lawndale, you should hear a message that's directly from the Word of God. You're going to hear that. It's going to be biblical exposition. So we finish up with 1 Timothy and we move to another book in the Bible in part because this is the Word of God. I, I don't have anything to say apart from the Word of God that's going to make any eternal difference. And unless we're focused on the Word and hearing it preached and even taught in our classrooms, no eternal good is going to happen out of that. We're, we're the pillar and buttress of the truth, and so we should be teaching the Word of God. Notice over in uh, chapter 4, in verse 13, again, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. That's our focus. We're going to not only be God-centered, we're going to be Word-focused, teaching the Word of God verse by verse through a book at a time so that we can hear God and know what He thinks not just what we think, and not be caught up in what the world thinks. The world's pretty clever. The devil has been scheming for a long time, and he trips people up with different kinds of arguments. And we get to come together on a Sunday morning like this and come back and be reminded, this is the Word of God. It is true. It has always been true. It will always be true. We're word-focused, but we're also gospel-rich in our worship. If a church is going to be committed to biblical worship, it should be gospel-rich. And when you look in chapter 3, as Paul was telling them that they would know how to behave in the household of God, he then says in verse 16, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. And what does he talk about? Well, he was manifested in the flesh. The incarnation is Christ. 
That's the mystery of godliness. That's how to be right with God. That's how to attract God is to be focused on Christ. And it's gospel rich. He came and he, he lived a perfect life so that he could be the perfect offering and sacrifice for our sin. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. So although he died for our sins, he was vindicated by the Spirit. He rose from the dead. You see, that's at the heart of what we do. We, we should be a gospel rich church. If there's a sermon that's preached that doesn't point to the gospel, we've missed it. Everything in this book points to the gospel. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, even Numbers and Deuteronomy. It all points to the gospel. And you go through all 66 books, we've got to be gospel rich. What does this say about Christ? We're God-centered, word-focused, gospel rich, and prayer-driven. We can't do this work in our own strength. As smart as some of you are and as talented as some of you are, we could never pull it off doing the work of God and being ready for Jesus to come back if we try to do it in our own strength. There's a reliance on God. And so that's why Paul told Timothy in chapter 2, verse 1, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We gather to worship to be equipped, to fellowship, and to make disciples when we're sent, not only here, but in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and in our state, in our nation, in our world. Remember what we've talked about as far as biblical worship? We're not, we're not a cruise ship at Lawndale. I tell you what, if you come, we're going to make you feel perfectly at home, and you're going to enjoy your stay with us, and everything you need, we're just going to Put it out there on a platter. That's, that's not this biblical idea of gathering as the body of Christ. I, I'm not even so sure we, I, I like the battleship analogy because that seems somewhat self-contained. But remember we talked about the aircraft carrier where all the planes come in and are refueled and then they're sent back out to do the work. You, you see, that's biblical worship. The people of God come together and they, they offer their worship and their praise to God and, and we're equipped to do the work that He's given us and we're sent back out to do the work He's commanded us to do of making disciples. We commit to biblical worship. If we're going to be ready though, I would say we also are going to be committed to intergenerational ministry. That's our second core value. Notice how... This is integral to the letter that Paul wrote Timothy in chapter 5 and verse 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. God means for us to treat each other like family. It's the household of God. There, there are a lot of moms and dads in this room for the younger congregation as far as the family of God when Maureen Burns was leading the choir today and offered a prayer, I thought, man, wouldn't it be neat if many of our young ladies in the church felt like she was a spiritual mom? And by the way, many of them do. Isn't that the kind of spiritual moms and dads that we, we want to have? And, and then 
not only the spiritual moms and dads, but the spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ, the people we lean into, we, we love and we encourage and we're encouraged by. So we're treating each other like a family, like moms and dads and brothers and sisters. We value all the age groups. I, I, I feel sad for churches that have no senior adults. They're not learning from the wisdom and the experience of men and women who've walked with God and come through some trials and understood the need to be steady and stable and come back to the Word of God even in the storms that may hit them. Every time we have a senior adult that joins our church, I'm like, thank you, God, for another man or woman who's walked with God, who loves Him, and who will be a spiritual mom and a spiritual dad here at Lawndale. But I, I also value the younger folks when they come, whether students or college or, or uh, singles or young married or whatever age, young, uh, middle age, because I, I'm thanking God for these who are brothers and sisters to one another in our church family and that we can act like a, a household, a family. My house hasn't always operated smoothly. There are adjustments we make and we work together and we love each other and church families don't always operate smoothly either, but we love each other and we encourage each other. We value the age groups. We're, we're committed to being an intergenerational church. It's like I, I, I feel bad for churches who don't have older adults. I feel bad for churches that don't have younger followers of Christ. We are blessed at Lawndale with a very strong student ministry. I, I love our students. They have a campaign that's taking place right now called Pray For Me. Now, a lot of our students this morning that are here are seated right over here. And you know one thing I love? I love that we had some senior adults who were sitting here and saw the students, and they gladly moved to let the students sit. Now, you know, isn't that a neat thing, senior adults? Isn't that neat? And, and some sit with families, that's fine too. Some are sitting here, but, but there's a Pray For Me campaign. And I, I, I don't do this very often, but I'm going to pull my pastor card out for just a second. Um, I joke sometimes at the house, I'm, I'm going to pull my, my head of the household card out. I, I, I'm, that's rare. Uh, but what I'm trying to say to you, some of you have not signed up for that Pray For Me campaign. And can you imagine what it would be like if we had senior adults and median age adults and young adults who are praying for our students? I, I love praying for our children and grandchildren. I love praying for you. I, I have days of the week I pray for different ways that our church is ministering and members in our church. I, I think it's important that we're praying for each other. And some of these students have moms and dads who are praying for them regularly. Some of them have grandparents that are praying for them regularly. But wouldn't it be a shame if they didn't have their church family praying for them regularly? Some of them don't have parents or grandparents who are praying for them regularly. Now, I'm, I'm not shaming you. I'm just pulling out my pastor card to say it's not too late. So this morning when you leave, you can go to one of the Lawndale link stations and you can sign up you can do it on your phone you can go to Lawndale and register you can come tonight tonight at five o'clock we're going to all meet in the worship center and we're going to hear what pray for me is and how it's intergenerational and how the older and the younger come together and if it all works out 
I'm hoping that all of our students will be in the CLC and we'll get to meet who we're praying for if we don't know. And so some of you don't know some of our students, and that's okay. And Some of our students don't know you either. But we want to change that. We want to be an intergenerational church when when people come to church, we treat each other like moms and dads and grandparents and brothers and sisters. I think if we're going to be ready when Jesus comes back, we've got to be the household of God, an intergenerational church. Third thing that I think will help us to be ready when Jesus comes back is committing to a discipleship culture. Paul referenced in chapter 1 when he was talking to Timothy about his own conversion. He talked about in verses 12 and following how he had lived an ungodly life and how God had saved him out of his sinfulness. And remember what he said in verse 15, but I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul went through a transformation in his life where Jesus brought him to himself. Jesus became the focus of his life. He understood why Jesus died for his sin and uh, to appease the wrath of God. He understood why Jesus rose from the dead to show power over death and hell and sin. And he understood that Jesus was alive and that he should surrender to the Lordship of Christ. And on that road to Damascus, Paul gave his life to Christ. And part of our job when we scatter From here, when we leave, when we've worshipped God and we've been equipped for the work of God, we go out so that we can make disciples. Making disciples is going, is taking that message in all the places that God has put us, in our home, in our neighborhoods, in our schools. You are not where you are by accident. You don't live in the family you live in by accident. God means for you to make disciples at home. You don't live in the neighborhood you live in by accident. God means for you to make disciples right there in your neighborhood. You don't live in this city of Greensboro by accident. God means for you to make disciples and making disciples is helping others come to Christ to understand his death and his resurrection and how he gives new life for those who follow him. But he also wants us to help others grow up in Christ. So it's not only going and sharing this good news as making disciples, but it's also baptizing and teaching, helping people to identify with Christ and his people, his church, baptizing. We have our next baptism service coming up on September 12. That's the day we have no life journey groups. We have one service at 945, September 12, and we're going to have baptism. Some of you have been thinking, well, maybe I should get baptized. I've, I've accepted Christ, I've placed my faith in Him, I'm following Him, but I've never made a public profession. That's baptism. You're already saved, but publicly you let everybody else know through this picture of going underwater, death, I died to my old life, coming up out of the water, resurrection, new life. Now I'm living a new life for Jesus. And some of you have been thinking about that. I encourage you to register, sign up, call the office, go to one of the Lawndale link tables and sign up for September 12 for baptism. You see, that's a part of the discipleship culture that we focus on the going, we focus on the baptizing, and we focus on the teaching, helping people to grow up in their faith. We do discipleship from the pulpit. We do it verse by verse. We do it in small groups and life journey groups and D groups and 
men's groups and women's groups because we know that when people gather and talk about the Word of God, they're going to grow. And we do it one-on-one as we pair up more seasoned people who've been following Christ for a while with less seasoned or less experienced people who are following Christ. We commit to a discipleship culture. How else would we be ready when Jesus comes back? You know what he said to do before he left? Make disciples. I want to be faithful when he returns. Fourth commitment, we commit to family equipping. Family's God's idea. It's interesting how much in Scripture God talks about family. From the beginning of creation, He instituted family. Marriage is His idea. Having children is His idea. It's all God's idea. There may be some who are called not to get married and some who are called not to have children, but in general, most of us are called in that direction. And as we go through Scripture, we get instructions on how to live out family life. And 1 Timothy is no less. It's interesting that a book on the church has so much to say about family. I would submit to you, healthy families make healthy churches. When men know how to love their wives like Jesus loves the church, and women know how to follow their husbands like the church follows Christ, and parents know how to shepherd and train and disciple their kids, and the kids know how to respect their parents, and adults know how to take care of aging adults' parents, That's what God intended. And the world tries to pull us away. We're going to be committed to family equipping. There are roles in the church and in the home. We we studied that in chapter 2. You can read that at the end. There are expectations for marriage and parenting that are given for the leaders in chapter 3. In part because... We all should be modeling what this looks like. There are instructions for children and grandchildren and widows. You see, God's concerned about the family. Your family. And if God's concerned about it, surely we should be concerned about it. And if this book that's written to the church so that it would know how to behave in the household of God has so many instructions about the family, it seems like that we would take that seriously if we're going to be a church that's ready for Jesus to come back. Fifth thing that we commit to. We commit to leadership development. That's our fifth core value. If you're new to Lawndale, these are our five core values. This is what we're saying we're focused on. And this morning as we've studied through the book of 1 Timothy, I want you to see how integrated it is with the Word of God that we're just trying to carry out the work of God. We've just put it in five core values to help us to talk about it, discuss it, and to know what we're aiming for. And surely we can see that from 1 Timothy, leadership development is a part of that. Paul trained Timothy. It's very clear. He had spent time with Timothy on missionary journeys. They had ministered together in churches and as they went to other churches. And when this need arose at Ephesus, Paul told Timothy, I want you to stay there for a while. And I want you to pastor that church and command those who are teaching certain doctrines, false doctrines, to stop. And to get the church in line with where God wants them to be. Paul trained Timothy, and Timothy was to train others. Part of that, in chapter 3 and verse 1, the saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, desires a noble task. And then he gives these qualifications for what the overseer should be like, and we know overseer is just a word used interchangeably for, for elder and pastor. And so he's training Timothy on how to train up leaders. 
These are the kind of men that you want to develop. And these are the kind of people you want to develop so that you can send out. That you can send out to Greensboro. That you can send out all over the state. That you can send out into the world. Be that aircraft carrier that fuels up, refuels up, and is aware when God's calling people to wherever they're calling them to be obedient. He says it even more clearly in his second letter to Timothy. I love this, 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So God intends for us to develop leaders and send them out all over the world. The church isn't this holding place where we see people come to Christ and we just keep growing and growing and growing. Now, I think we want to see people come to Christ and we want to grow But part of that growing is sending. It's God's plan. Who are we sending? And it it isn't always across the world. Sometimes it is. But it is always in your home. We want to send you back to home to do good ministry in your home, in your neighborhood. We want to send you back at work. We want to send you back to school. We want to send you uh, in all of these places to do the work of God and to make disciples. So church... Will we be ready when he returns? I, I, gotta, I think if we took a vote this morning, now it doesn't matter how you'd vote on this, what the outcome of the vote would be. I'm just going to tell you, it's going to happen whether you believe it or not. But if I took a vote and said, how many of you believe Jesus is coming back? I, I, think, I think we would have a near unanimous vote this morning. And so are we going to be ready? We know he's coming. When you know company's coming and you put it off all week and you start right at the last minute trying to clean up your house, some of you have been there before. I mean, why, why would we wait any longer? Why would we wait any longer? God, whatever you want to do, we're in. We want to be ready when you return. Why do we care about all this stuff? It's for him. It's not for us. So this morning as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper, I think it's fitting that we're closing out a study of 1 Timothy, a book that tells us what we're supposed to do as a church and that we get to take the Lord's Supper for the very reasons that he's given us this supper to observe together as a family. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we see that the Lord's Supper is a time of examination. So church... Here's one way to be ready. Examine yourself right now. He said in verse 28, Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, I would say examine yourself first to make sure you're in the faith. Don't take this supper if you've not received Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. This this is a time to remember what Jesus did and how he's changed your life. And you would not be taking this bread and this juice in a worthy manner if you're not in the family of God yet. Examine your, are you in the faith? Have you placed your faith in Jesus' death and resurrection? And have you confessed him as your Lord and you're following him now? And the fruit of that is evident in the way that you're living. Then examine yourself to make sure you're in the faith. Also examine yourself so that there's nothing in your life that's not right with God. Is there anything in your life that you know God's not pleased with? He's he's dealing with you already. He's convicting you and you know, I need to repent 
of this sin. What a gracious thing that the Lord would tell us to observe this supper so that we could have another opportunity to make everything right with Him. I would encourage you before you take the Lord's Supper to to have that kind of prayer. God, if there's anything in my life that's not pleasing to you, would you convict me of that right now? If anything, I don't even see. But Lord, what you have shown me, I repent of, I turn from right now. The Lord's Supper is a time of examination. It's also a time of reflection. Again, in 1 Corinthians 11, as Paul was writing, he said, And when he had given thanks, when Jesus had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is a time when we realize and remember that our lives are not about us. We take the Lord's Supper, God, it's all about you. Remember what Jesus did for you. That evokes surrender and submission and fellowship and obedience. That's why we say it's not enough just to, to think of the gospel when you first become saved, but we grow deeper in the gospel as we are saved. We just keep thinking about it and growing and understanding what God has done for us. It's a time to remember and reflect. Not only with what he did in coming and taking on human flesh and dying, but in the same way he also took the cup. And after supper, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then finally, the Lord's Supper is a time of proclamation. You see that in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11. For as often as you eat and drink the cup, eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is our way to proclaim the gospel to ourselves, grow deeper in it. And even for those who come and meet with us who don't know Christ yet, it's a time for them to know, why do these guys meet like this? Why do they live like they do? Why do they call Jesus their Lord? Well, it's because he died for them. He shed his blood. He gave his life for them. And so now they give their all for him. I would have given up on the church long ago in my life. When I was a boy, I remember my church family going through a, a church split. I remember a lot of things happening and difficulties. And, and I've seen this as I've done ministry over 30 years. Church fights and squabbles and people who get upset and act unchristian and I would have given up on the church long ago but for this Jesus hasn't given up on the church and one day he's coming back for his church and so until he comes back we're going to take the Lord's Supper and until he comes back we're going to do everything that he's called us to do to be ready for his return. Are you ready this morning? The altar the, is going to be open during the invitation. I encourage you to get things right this morning. Before we take the Lord's Supper. Before we enjoy this, this meal together. I'm going to encourage you. Make sure you're right with God in this moment. Let's pray. 
Father, as we come to you in prayer, we understand there's nothing we can do on our own without your help. Even the fact that Lawndale is a strong biblical church, it's only because you allowed that. You called this church to that. Thank you for your good work. And if we're ever going to move forward, we know it's only because you allow us to and you lead us. And so this morning, we surrender all to you. We surrender all our ideas. We surrender all our traditions. We surrender all of ourselves to you and ask you to do what only you can do in us and through us as a church family. Would you make us a household, a family? Would you grow us in understanding our spiritual moms and dads? Would you grow us in understanding our brothers and sisters and how we can encourage one another and bless each other and be united together? Would you make us a church that's focused on you and your glory that we would draw your attention? Would you make us a church that makes disciples, seeing people come to know Christ and grow up in him? Would you make us a church that's family friendly and encourages and equips families to do the ministry you've given us and Would you make us a church that trains up leaders and sends them out all over the world for your glory? God, make us a church that's ready for you. In Jesus' name we pray.